you're not tired as the outgoing runner, and they are completely spent. They don't want to take another step if they don't have to, right? Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I'm in the remote location today. <laughs> I'm in a satellite office. <laughs> Displaced by the hurricane, but I am still here. If it's not Corona, if it's a hurricane, you know, what else 2020? What else? Yeah, don't Don't ask. Okay, so we've got Corona, we've gotten a couple hurricanes, there were murder hornets, and now I heard about zombie wasps. I, I don't even want to know. They get infected, they're brain dead, but they still fly around and sting you. Oh my goodness. Zombie wasps. That's what August has brought us. Fantastic. Well, only a few more months of the year. <laughs> what else? What else could go wrong? Still waiting for the alien invasion. That'll come. Don't, don't worry. I think in the murder hornets and the zombie wasps are, you know, the precursor. <laughs> well, normally we would be on week two of the Tokyo Games. No. Can you imagine? And I have no TV, no electricity. I would be just like driving around in my car trying to get a signal, <laughs> trying to watch things. Like, what'd you watch today, Allison? The street. <laughs> I watched trees falling. <laughs> what I watched today. Usually an Olympic Games for us is a fundraising opportunity because we have a lot more listeners and we are not getting that this year, much like all everybody the, else. Yeah, much like every other sport and uh, Olympic committee, we're not getting the funding that we were expecting to get this year. However, we have had a bigger need for funds than usual. Uh, and we're not even talking about what we would have spent on travel for Tokyo that we'll have to spend next year. Uh, it's the all of the costs involved with relaunching the podcast. There were a nice chunk of legal fees, some other professional services fees that we had to get. And it's been a little tough on our wallets. So if you appreciate what we do for you and could help us out, we'd appreciate it as well. Please, if you'd like to be an ongoing donor, we have a Patreon set up at patreon.com slash flamealivepod. We also have a link to PayPal on our website. It's a little button at the top corner that you can give a one-time donation. And if uh, you have the means and uh, the desire, we would really appreciate the help. We had so much fun at the uh, opening weekend parties that we wanted to do something for the closing weekend. So we're doing it on Saturday the 8th, which will be the closing ceremonies of Tokyo 2020 and 2021. And we are having uh, a special watch party with our Shukflistani, John McLeod, who has done a documentary on Steve Gentner. Steve was a swimming Olympian at Munich in 1972, and John's done a documentary on his story, which is just incredible what uh, Steve overcame during the Games and then uh, a different event that happened at the Games that kind of 
set a trajectory that really affected the rest of his life. So tune in for that will be Saturday again. We're going to be uh, on Zoom at uh, 4 p.m. Eastern to uh, the last set of parties were a little bit more friendly toward Australia, New Zealand, Japan area. This one's a little more friendly toward Europe. So if we're on at 4, that's uh, 9 p.m. in the UK, 10 in Central Europe. In Melbourne, Australia, it'll be 6 a.m., 5 a.m. in Tokyo, and 8 a.m. in New Zealand. And then if you're back in the U.S., it's 1 p.m. Pacific on Saturday. So either Saturday afternoon, evening, or Sunday morning, we hope to be able to see you. This will be on Zoom again. The information is in our Facebook group. That's Flame Alive Podcast group. And if you're not on Facebook, just drop us an email at flamealivepod at gmail.com. And we will send you the meeting information. And John will be with us. Yes, we'll do a little Q&A afterwards. A little Q&A, absolutely. Speaking of documentaries, a documentary that I saw in Boston probably a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, is now available on streaming platforms. And it's called The Stand, and it's about the uh, 1968 Mexico City Games and specifically the protest of uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos. It was a really interesting documentary, so I highly recommend it. You can find it on iTunes, Amazon, Microsoft, Google Play, and Vudu. Check that and out. Very timely, since we have a couple things to today about Rule 50 later. Yeah, we'll exactly. We'll, we'll circle back to that. Yeah. So today, our guest is 2004 American Olympian Andrew Rock. Andrew was part of the six-member 4x400 relay team and ran in the race that qualified the U.S. to run in the finals, and they won the gold medal. So Andrew is a gold medalist. Andrew followed up his Olympics with a gold in the 4x400-meter relay and a silver in the 400 at World Champs in 2005. He is currently the head coach of the track and field teams at Bethel University in Minnesota. Andrew talked with us. Oh, and he's Dr. Claudia Reardon's brother. So Andrew talked, Andrew talked with us about how passing the baton in relay races works. Take a listen. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. We are talking about relays in athletics today. So talk to us a little bit about how relay teams get created for the Olympics. Yeah, first of all, thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm thrilled to be on here, and I appreciate it. In, in terms of how relay teams get picked uh, at the Olympic Games, it's um, pretty much entirely based on the Olympic trials. And so you run at the Olympic trials in the open for me, for example, in the in the 400, you, I ran the 400 open um, at the Olympic trials, and then they take the top six finishers from the finals um, to the Olympic uh, Games. And so there's a couple of different rounds in the 4x400 at the Olympics. So they'll run, like, finish three, four, five, or six, and uh, at the trials, you'll run in a round, and then They'll kind of rest some people, and then um, they'll decide who will run the final then of those six. So the Olympic Committee allows you to bring six. So it's all based on the trials, and then we all go together, and we have like a kind of a we had in my experience in the 2004 Olympic Games, we had kind of a relay camp, I would say, um, where um, we trained together and you know worked on handoffs and things, and we ran a few meets prior to the Olympics. I think we ran in Munich, Germany about three weeks before the Olympics together in a four by four. Um, I also ran in Montreal, Canada a few weeks before that. And so just kind of that 
team chemistry is also really important. So they always bring the six because I thought that was very interesting that, you know, cause there's obviously only four running it at any given race. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they, they always bring six. I think, you know, that's what every country is allowed to bring for the relays. And for a couple of reasons, I think number one, I mean, if you have injuries, for example, you'd have some other people to, to pull in. And then, like I said, the rounds. And so the U S foreign year runners, you know, traditionally it's such a deep event in the U S and it's, I mean, to be quite frank, I think, I mean, for me, for example, it was much more stressful and hard to make the team for the Olympics than it was maybe even actually running at the Olympics. I mean, I, I was more relaxed, I think, running in Athens than I was trying to get there because there's always a dozen or more athletes that are probably in a position to fight for those six spots. And so um, the re- there, there's also a relay coach or a head coach that's assigned to the Olympic track team that's in charge of kind of making relay decisions, you know, personnel decisions, working with us on handoffs and techniques. Um, and his name was Oren Richberg when I was, was running. And I think he's still involved in USA track and field as well now, but he was in charge of picking the relays and who was going to run uh, what round. And, um, and then George Williams was also the head track coach at the Olympic games when I was there. And he had a say in that too. So in the movies, there is always a scene where one of the runners goes to the track coach and pushes to be, you know, come on coach, put me in. Do those conversations yeah. ever really happen between athletes and coaches? Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, yeah, from my experience, you know, you also have 400 hurdlers that are trying to get on the 4x400. So you've got six people from the 400 at the trials. Then you've got three people that are in the 400 hurdles. And a lot of times the 400 hurdlers are, you know, great 400-meter runners as well. And so, for example, I think, at this last world championships, a guy named Ry Benjamin was second on the 400 hurdles. He's one of the best 400 meter runners in the world too. And so the U S put him on the four by four. And so there's a lot of different um, dynamic that goes into that decision on who gets to run. And so I, I know when I was going through it and I was uh, fifth that year at the Olympic trials, they, they, you know, they told me I was going to go to Athens and I, I'll be honest, like I didn't know for sure, for sure I was going to run until maybe two days before. And and so that was a little (laughs) stressful too, because I was, you know, and part of the deal was between the Olympic trials and the Olympic games, there was probably about four or five weeks, if I remember right, maybe, maybe six weeks between there. And so again, we ran in, in Montreal and we ran in Munich and part of that was to continue to prove your fitness, um, that, Hey, I'm, I'm running well, like, you know, in Europe and I'm running well in these meets. And I was young. I mean, I was 22 years old, just a recent college grad. And so part of that was kind of proving myself like, okay, I did well at the trials and now I'm doing well in Europe. They can trust me to run the leg, you know, to, to get the U S team to where we want to be and ultimately win the gold medal. I mean, the expectations for Team USA and in, in the relays are pretty high, <laughs> and so um, we really were there to win the gold medal, and and so being able to have, kind of prove yourself through those things too is part of it. Yeah. Okay, now I'm trying to get all my questions in before Jill starts asking about the baton, because <laughs> <laughs> I know when she gets to the baton, I'm done. 
Do you want to put yourself in bubble wrap in those four to five weeks? I would think that the the fear of injury could be so overwhelming. Well, you know, in terms of you go in and you work work with the other members on relay stuff and exchanges, but the one thing that doesn't change is you still have the coach that was coaching you all along. So my college coach was coaching me that summer through the Olympics you know, so you try to keep as much consistency as you had and the things that worked for you in the past, you continue to do. You don't make changes because, you know, drastic changes in an environment like that can lead to injury. And quite frankly, I just kind of, you know, you just kind of take it and focus on one day at a time, do what you need to do that day to be your best. Of course, nobody wants to make the Olympic team and then get hurt and not be able to run. But like I said, I think the biggest thing is consistency in what you were doing and you continue to do. Like, I think there is that kind of trap, like, oh, I made the Olympic team. Now I've got to do more so I can be faster there. And I think that's a trap of that you can fall into to get hurt pretty quickly. And so my coach was there and I think coaches in general are there to help guide you and pull the reins in and know when to do that. And, and, also know when to push you appropriately and my my college coach coach Mark Guthrie was just phenomenal in keeping the same program that had worked for me for the last four years and and continuing to develop my fitness that summer Um, no matter what anybody else was doing around me I was you know he said you know you're going to do what we've been doing and so um, I'm grateful for his support he was there he came to to Athens and we had a training camp on the island of Crete And he was there for those couple of weeks and he was there every day at practice and kind of that normalcy of seeing him and him coaching me on a daily basis really helped me too in terms of confidence and consistency. And so I'm grateful for how he kind of developed me through that summer and through my professional career as well. When you're at these training camps, how do you balance your coach versus the Team USA coach? I think each person has a role. So the Team USA coach's role is not to provide you workouts in terms of, you know, keeping fit. Um, Because like I said, you've got people that are coming from all over joined together. And so, you know, we would all go to the track at the same time, but we were all doing different workouts. For example, like Jeremy Warner, who made the Olympic team that year, was a sophomore in college at Baylor University. So his college coach was there with him. And then you've got other college athletes and you've got professional athletes and their coaches. So, so what we would do is you kind of do your main workout that everybody was going to do that their, their specific or individual coach had written for them. And then after that, we would maybe end the day, we'd come together and do some exchanges or things like that, that then the personal coach would kind of step away from and the Olympic coach or the relay coach would kind of, help with the exchanges and the timing and things like that. And so it's, it's kind of, yeah, it actually works out really well and people aren't stepping on each other's toes. And, you know, I think the Olympic coaches and the relay coaches have been around and done this so long that they understand that the individual athletes need to do what they've done to get there uh, through their personal coaches as well. And like I said, you just gotta, you gotta keep, in terms of the relays, you got to keep kind of proving that you're fit and through those races. And so in terms of who runs what leg or who's going to be on the relay in those kind of races is determined by the Olympic coaches, however, not the personal coaches. So they don't really have a say in what leg you're going to run or things like that. Speaking of the leg assignments, 
when you look at the makeup of the relay, how do they determine who runs what leg? Yeah, um, I think it's a, it's a couple of things. You know, it depends on kind of the experience you have on the relay. So I ran, I've run through my professional career, I ran different legs and you kind of, you kind of get known for, for being specific to a leg. So when I first came onto the scene and made the Olympic team, I ran third leg when I ran at the Olympics. And then later kind of beyond that, every year after that, I, I started leading off the relays internationally and I got kind of known for, they always put me lead off. So there's, there's different strategies involved, but I think when you're talking about a lead off leg, you need somebody who's very consistent and strong finisher um, that will get you to the front of the race. You know, so traditionally it could be your second fastest leg would be lead off. And then traditionally you're going to put your fastest guy anchor or fourth Obviously, you know, in case the race is close, you've got the firepower in the back of your number one runner. And then two and three in track, the second runner in a four by four. So the first runner is is running their leg in, in their lane the whole way. And then the second runner is going to run the first corner in their lane. And then they're going to cut down to lane one on the back stretch. So traditionally, the second leg or runner is probably maybe has the best top end speed so they can if they have to kind of exert a, a push or a big burst of speed to get get the cut and get to the front of the race and get get into lane one in front um, that's a valuable kind of skill to have there too so the olympic coaches like you know they get to know the athletes and they get to know the strengths and weaknesses of the athletes and then they kind of make that decision based on on those strengths and weaknesses, you know, they're watching and understanding each athlete from the Olympic trials. They're looking at splits and how the person runs the race structure of the race. I know that they come to certain meets and they're watching. So they kind of get familiar. Like they always kind of, they're around the sport. They're around all these professional meets and they just get to know how people race. And then they put them in those positions based on kind of the strengths of, uh, that and it's really it's really intriguing and unique because it's more like you watch the stuff on tv and you think you know these athletes make it look so easy and just so natural and there's just so much behind the scenes and so much more that goes into it than you think there is and and, and in the relays as well you know just the scouting and the just knowing your athletes really well i think is really valuable and the 400 is hard to do so because it's the longest sprint, basically. So break down how a 400 works in your mind as an athlete. Sure. Yeah, it's, it is a painful event. <laughs> it's, uh, it's hard. It's one of the hardest events in track. And so I guess the way I would describe the 400, and, and I heard this from Clyde Hart, who's he was the longtime track and field coach at Baylor University, and he coached. Michael Johnson, who had the world record in the 200 and 400 for a long time, and he coached Jeremy Warner, who was an Olympic champ, and he's my college coach's biggest influence, and he always referred to it as the four Ps of the 400, so it would be push, so the first 100 would be push, so you're kind of accelerating, getting out hard, you know, and getting up to race speed as quick as you can, and then pace, uh, so you're kind of 
pacing yourself a little bit down the backstretch is kind of this fast, comfortable rhythm. You're not, you're not slowing down, but you're, you're not also gritting your teeth and, you know, straining at this point, you're, you kind of, like I said, that kind of fast, comfortable rhythm and relaxed and, and your face would look relaxed. And, and that's actually the, from 100 to 200 is actually the fastest stretch of the race. That would be, if you timed the four segments, that would be your fastest split. And then the third hundred meters would be position. So you're kind of, when you hit the 200 in your mind, you're thinking I've got to accelerate. That's when you start to kind of feel the pain of the race is at 200. And it's kind of that mentality of like, I feel the pain. So you can either just kind of stay there or give into it, or you can accelerate. And, and it's kind of that signal to your body that I'm not giving into this. Right. And so you're positioning yourself for the final hundred. So you're in a good position to make the move that you want to make, um, to finish where you want to finish. And then the last hundred is pray. So you, you, you really, you have, I mean, that's the hard part. You're hurting. You're trying to maintain your form. You're trying to, uh, to hold everything together. And the way I describe it is the last hundred is the hardest part of the race, but it's also the easiest because there's not a lot of strategy. You're just running absolutely as hard as you can, you're not holding anything back. You're trying to keep your chin level and relax as you can and knee drive. And, and so we, yeah, so it's kind of this break it into four segments, which I think mentally is a lot easier to do than if you get in the starting blocks and you think of this daunting, painful 400 meter race and when's it going to start to hurt. And if that's your mentality, I think it just becomes a grind the whole way. But if you think, okay, I have a goal for the first hundred and I can't think beyond that until I hit that. It's just kind of that distraction to your mind. Like, okay, I got through that. Now what do I do the second hundred? Okay. I got through that. Now what do I do the third hundred? Okay. I got through that, you know, and it's that distraction from the pain uh, or the difficulty of the race that I think can help you manage it. And so I think that's always been good advice. And my coach has always talked to me about that too. How is not one of the P's pain? <laughs> I think that's like the fifth P that needs to be added to this because it 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 just the, is so grueling. That's the fifth P, and we'll capitalize that one. How about that? Does that sound good? <laughs> Perfect. The other ones are lowercase, and that one's that one's capitalized. <laughs> Have you ever had a four hundred where you didn't feel the pain? You know what's interesting is, I mean. I've never had a 400 that I haven't felt the pain, but you have different races that, that are less painful than others. And what's really interesting is like some of my fastest races ever. And I'll say my PR race, which was in the 2005 world championships in Helsinki in the 400, it was one of the least painful races that I can remember. And it was also my fastest. And then I can remember other races that I ran a couple of tenths or half a second slower that felt 10 times worse. <laughs> and I, I don't know why, if that's just, I think part of it is the moment and you're trying to kind of seize the moment. And also when you're in your best shape of your life, it also maybe helps you deal with a little bit of the pain and recover. And I think if you do well in a race, maybe you quickly forget about the pain, <laughs> um, but if it wasn't your best race, then you maybe dwell on that uh, part. And so it is really interesting how that works, though. And you'd be in some races where you can walk away saying, okay, that was painful, but it wasn't that bad. 
and I felt really good. And other races where you're like, man, that was just an absolute grind. And that last hundred was like, I did not want to take another step. And I think some of that comes with stress and confidence. Like I, I do remember like running at the Olympic trials those were some of the hardest and most painful races I ever ran. And I remember just the, the, in the final of the Olympic trials, the last hundred was just grueling. And I just, I got near the finish. I was like, I don't know if I can take another step. Like I, you know, and I think part of that was the stress trickling into like, okay, this is kind of, this could be once in a lifetime opportunity. I can make the Olympic team. I don't want to screw this up, <laughs> you know, and that there's a lot of pressure because it's, even in the 400, to be honest, a hundredth or two can separate you from going to the Olympics or not. And that's, that's a lot of pressure that, hey, if I make one tiny little mistake, I will not be going to Athens. You know, I will be watching it from TV. And I think that trickles into maybe a little bit of how you feel too. And then like when I got to the Olympics and ran to the Olympics, it was one of those, my leg, I felt like, felt like I could have kept going and I don't know why I just felt really confident and I felt like hey part of this relay thing is like my team is relying on me this is not just me out there you know and I, I just felt great when I handed it off and I just felt like okay I feel really strong and I feel incredible so I, I don't know I mean it, it's hard to say but I think that there's a lot of factors that feed into that all right you mentioned this a little earlier about the race, it starts in a staggered position, and then the second leg moves in. So let's let's break this all down. When you get your lane placements, what's ideal? The middle of the track is uh, preferred. So if it's an eight-lane track, lane four would be the preferred lane. If it's a nine-lane track, lane five would be the preferred lane. Um, in general, you have one or two of the best teams outside of you if you rank number one. So if you're in lane four, maybe the number two seed would be in five, could be in six. And so you can see to your outside the best competition, which is always helpful. And so, you know, I think it's a little, it's the balance of it's a little big, it's a bigger radius when you're in the middle of the track versus the inner lanes. And you can see, the best people outside of you. So you can kind of keep an eye on what they're doing and um, they can kind of pull you along. And so it's that kind of competitive instinct. So I think the, I think the biggest advantage though is the ability to see the best people around you. You know, you can't see what's going on inside of you. And so, yeah, that's where you want to be. So the top finishers get the outside lanes. So the way it works is in, in terms of lane seating, it's kind of four on an eight lane track, four would be the preferred lane, then five. So it goes, it, they kind of do it this way. They go four, five, three, six, seven, two, one, eight. That's how they assign lanes. So the number one seeds in four, number two's in five, number three's in three, number four's in six, number five's in two. Does that make sense? So they kind of alternate back and forth. So you have, so the seven and eight seeds would be in lanes one and eight. So lane one being a tight corner, it's the tightest radius, and lane eight meaning you can't see anybody outside of you. Everybody in the entire race is inside of you, which is also tough. 
What are the rules in terms of passing the baton? And maybe maybe leg one to two is different from le- the the rest of the handoffs. Yeah. So in the four by four hundred, it's a twenty meter zone. So you have to start. So the we'll, we can do it exchange by exchange. So the first exchange, the the leadoff runner is running in their lane, and it's a three turn stagger. So which means that you're running in your lanes for three total turns. And so the leadoff runner is going to run two turns. And the outgoing runner, so the number two runner, is going to be actually beyond the finish line when they get the baton. So they will start right inside their triangle. They have to start inside that zone. They stand there, and then they have a 20-meter zone ahead of them where they have to get the baton in that zone. And so in the 4x400, it's it's different than the the 4x100, which is – the exchange is a lot more difficult in the four by 100 because you're doing a blind exchange there where you're running out and you're turning your back completely to the incoming runner. And you don't do that in the four by 400. So you're going to eyeball kind of their speed in the four by four. And you're going to kind of, when they get within about six or seven feet of you, you're going to, you're going to turn and take three hard steps. And then you're going to turn your body back and look at the person coming into you and holding your hand up in the air. So you have to remember that the incoming runner is at the end of a 400, so they're really tired. And so it's your job as outgoing runner to kind of give them a really big target with your hand and make it easy for them just to put it in there because you're not tired as the outgoing runner, and they are completely spent. They don't want to take another step if they don't have to, right? And so, so you're taking three hard steps and then you're turning back looking at them with your hand open and they're going to put that baton in there you're going to take it with your left hand turn switch it to your right and go and so then the second runner is going to run around that corner in their lane and then when they get to the back stretch they're going to cut they're going to angle to that far corner and cut down to lane one and then the rest of the race is in kind of lane one in the four by four. And so then when the second runner comes in, the third runner is going to be inside the exchange 10 meters behind the finish line. So the zone there will be 10 meters before the finish line, all the way through 10 meters beyond the finish line. So that's the 20 meter zone there. And then the same with the fourth runner. Okay. So when the second exchange to the third and the third to the fourth, it's not necessarily in the lane that that team started in. It could be uh, horizontally Mm -hmm. any spot. Yes. Okay. Yes. They line you up. They line you up right on that beginning of that zone based on what position you're in, and then they slide you down. So if you're leading the race, you're going to be standing in lane one. They're going to come in, and then if you're in second, you're going to be standing in lane two. And once that runner in lane one is gone, then they just keep sliding them down into lane one. Does that make sense? And if the race is close, then it could be spread out all along that finish line where you're, where you're handing off. So you have to look to see where your runner is. Yes. And in general, where your runner is with 200 meters to go. So like, say you're the third runner and the second runner is running their leg. Once they get to the 200 meter marker halfway, they will not let you switch positions on that zone. 
so if you're leading the race, your guy's leading the race with 200 to go, you're in lane one. If somebody passes them, they will not switch you. You're still going to stay there um, because otherwise you can get really chaotic on that exchange. So they want you to kind of just stay. And then it's your job. You know, you'll, if you watch some races, the, the outgoing runner, the, you know, the, the person that's going to be receiving the exchange, they're kind of raising their hand and waving so that incoming runner can kind of see where you're at. Cause if it's a close race, it can get really congested. And so you're draw, you're doing whatever you can to kind of draw attention to, Hey, this is where I'm at. You've got to find me here because if it's close, it can be chaos, you know? And so just giving them a target, making sure that they spot you and they're heading your direction, right. You know, is important. Yeah. Cause I'm imagining you're handing the baton to the wrong person might be a problem. That would, uh, that would be, that'd be a huge problem. So, and sometimes you'll see, you know, if it's congested, I mean, you have, I've seen where they don't realize where they are, where their teammate is until later or last minute. And you might have to make some strange move to the right or the left quickly to, as they realize, Oh, there's my person, like, you know, and so it's just, you gotta be aware because sometimes that, that incoming runner again they're tired and so they're maybe if they're a little disoriented or they can't you know it's tight and they're fighting for position and that you just got to give them the best signal you can to hey this is where i'm at come to me you know now is that left hand to right hand the same in the hundred meters um it's not so in the in the four by 100 relay they do not switch hands so that's that's a little different and so the way that works is the lead runner will be running on the inside of the track with the baton in their right hand. And then when they exchange it to the second runner, the second runner will take the baton on, from the outside of their lane with their left hand. They'll keep it there. And then the third runner will run on the inside of their lane and they will take it in their right hand and they will stay with it in their right hand. And then the last runner We'll take it in their left. So essentially in the 4 by 100 if you're running on a corner, you're running with the baton in your right hand. And if you're running on a straightaway, you're running with it in your left hand. And you leave it there. Um, so you're handing, you're passing from right to left. So the incoming runner is running within, in their right hand. The outgoing runner will be taking it in their left because that's those hands are closest and so you're not reaching across the body. And then, again, like I said, and if you're running with it in your left on a straightaway, then you're going to be handing it to that outgoing runner's right hand. So you can't just go switching lane, uh, uh, orders in the relays willy-nilly because there's really significant differences between those spots, even in the 100 where you're not oh, yeah. going out of your lane. Wow. Yeah. I never noticed the switching and even, not switching. Yes. Yeah, so in the 4 by 400 you'll always see – them taking it with their left and moving it to their right and always handing off with their right hand. And then the four by one where the, where the exchanges are much more critical and much more difficult to, to do um, because things are so short and fast. It, you will always, if you watch closely, you will always see the leadoff runner with it in the right, second runner with it in their left, third runner, right, fourth runner, left. So yeah. Yep. What is the reason you transfer hands in the 4x400? Because 
you're always going to um, it's an open exchange so you're looking back at the incoming runner and you're always going to take it with your left and so it's easier for the incoming runner to hand from right to left right and so just kind of like the four by one you're handing right to left it's the same with the four by four it's just an easier reach with with an outgoing runner who's turning back with their left hand to to switch it so then they can um, hand with their right to left and it's a safer exchange um, you're not reaching a, again you're not reaching across your body like if you're running with the baton in your left hand you're going to have to reach across your body to get to that outgoing runner's hand and that's when you're really really tired that's it's a dangerous move to, to reach across your body to hand off a baton. And so that's, I think it's that it's just the quicker and easier move. And, and the thing is in relays, the farther you can extend. So if you can extend that, when you're handing off, you extend that right arm out as far as you can. And that outgoing runner extends their left arm back as far as they can. You can cut three meters off the race where you're not running. Right. So if your arm is reaching a meter, uh, you know, a meter, a meter and a half out with the baton and the outline runner is reaching back a meter, that's two, two and a half meters that you're not covering, that somebody's not running in the race because you're just, you're skipping that part. Right. And the, the key is, can you give the baton to the outline runner when he's already at top speed or getting close to top speed? Because then that allows him to, save time too because accelerating is slow and when you're running already before you have the baton that's when you save time right and so being able to have the most efficient way to pass it where the out the incoming runner is not slowing down to hand it off and the outgoing runner is not slowing down to get it you're taking like i said meters off the race and you're taking acceleration out of it but you know that's why relay legs are if you're running second, third, or fourth are always faster than running from the blocks because you've taken acceleration out of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. And how do you get off the track once your leg is done? What are the rules around that? You're supposed to, um, when you hand off, you kind of just stay until the traffic around you is done because you don't know, like, who's coming behind you, where they're coming behind you. And if you just kind of stay, then people have to go around you versus like, okay, if I hand off in lane two in a four by four and I just quick jump to the inside, somebody might be coming inside of you and they might pow into you. And so if you're handing off in lane one, then you can, if you're handing off in lane one, you just jump to the inside of the track quick. Um, that works. But if you're handing off in two, three, or four, or something like that, then you're just going to kind of stay until all the traffic is by you um, so you don't get in the way. And, pe- you know, when you're coming up on somebody who's got their back to you, it's easier if they just stay because you really don't know which direction they're going to go. As a general rule, you'll never, ever go out. You're always going to, once you think the traffic is gone, then you're always going to go in to the inside of the track. There's officials that are kind of yelling directions at you as well so i was going to say and then are they the ones who also move the blocks after the first uh leg takes off yes yes and i not at the olympic level or anything like that but you occasionally at a college meet or something you'll you'll see 
once in a blue moon you see an official or people forget to take the blocks off and then and yelling as the runners are coming in like you got to move them because they're coming and they don't want to have to hop over them you know <laughs> so yeah then it becomes the 400 meter hurdles relay very quickly that's right yeah <laughs> so i have one quick question are you allowed to put anything on your hands put anything like a, on your hands yeah like a stickum or chalk or is there any rules around that or is there any preferences i've never heard of that like putting any sticky stuff on your hand i don't think so because i i don't think you would do that because you want you you know you don't want any trouble passing it to the next person <laughs> and so um yeah I don't, I don't think that's a huge issue you know in terms of like the four by one for example you're going to use tape or chalk to mark steps so when you're taking a four by 100 exchange the outgoing runner is going to mark back a certain amount of steps and they're going to put a big piece of tape on the track and then they're going to start wherever their start line is and when the incoming runner hits that piece of tape that's when they're accelerating as hard as they can so there's like it's not some random guess of when we're going to leave the outgoing runner is going to have this tape down and that's what all the practice is about in the four by 100 is what's the right spacing what where does that tape mark need to be so when that incoming runner hits that tape mark i'm accelerating as quick as i can and the thing with the four by one is where you get into trouble is if you leave a little bit early or leave a little bit late and it's really hard when somebody's coming in really fast to leave exactly on that mark it's a little bit scary but you got to trust the mark right and so that's why all the practice and everything is so important. So when that incoming runner who's going as fast as they can in 100 hits that tape mark, you're accelerating as hard as you can. You're never turning back. You're, you're, your back is to that runner, and all you're doing is trusting that that mark was right and that when that incoming runner yells stick, you're going to throw your hand back and that baton's going to be in it. Right? I mean, it's scary. <laughs> so. I was going to ask, when the incoming runner hits the tape, how does the outgoing runner know? Do they get told or are they looking? No, they're looking, they're looking back a little bit. So they're, they're facing forward, but they're turning their head back and they're looking back at that runner and that tape mark. And then when that runner hits that tape mark, then they turn their head forward and they're gone. You know, they're just accelerating as hard as they can. So they're looking back. There's, and then, once that runner hits that tape, they're running, you know, that outgoing runner is running as hard as they can. And they're the only thing they're doing is running until they hear the word stick or whatever word that the incoming runner is going to say. And so when that incoming runner yells stick, that's the outgoing runner's cue to throw his hand back. And so the, the incoming runner yells stick when they determine that the spacing is right. And then when that, when he yells stick, they put that baton out and put it in the hand of the outgoing runner. Oh my gosh, I could go an hour on just the four by one hundred. <laughs> it's really fascinating, honestly. <laughs> it is. Yeah, and I honestly, I'm I'm a college track coach, and the the, the most stressful relay to coach by far is the four by one hundred because of the exchanges. They're just so difficult, and um, anything can go wrong. It's really tough. Oh man. Allison, anything else? Oh, my God. I could, <laughs> I'm totally fascinated by the whole baton because I'm like, what is it made of? What does it look like? So now I got to go and find myself some batons and handle them, which sounded creepy, but 
Well, when you guys, when you, when you two get together, you can work on your four by one exchanges. <laughs> that'd be a good, I think that'd be a good plan. Olympic day is coming up. I know we got to practice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Andrew, thank you so much for this. This has been really great. Thank you so much, Andrew. You can follow Andrew's teams on social at BethelXCTF and check out Bethel's website at athletics.bethel.edu. And we'll have links to those in the show notes. Okay. So one of the things you sent me after this interview was the footage from the women's four by 100 meter relay from Rio, because the U.S. had an issue with its baton pass. There was contact in one of the prelims. Allison Felix dropped the baton. So of course now I'm watching the relay like a crazy person. One of the things we didn't talk to Andrew about, which was so weird, was they kind of hook their hands backwards. Yeah. So they don't place it. And this could be because it's the four by one versus the four by four. They don't place it in the upright palm you place it kind of in a twisted back palm. It looks very uncomfortable. But I wonder if that prevents the... How do I say that? Let me find the word. You hook around it. So you actually have like two points of contact by doing it that way with the baton. So you sort of create a claw. Right. So it's harder to drop, you know, because if you slapped it in somebody's hand and the one person lets go and the other person hasn't grabbed it yet... That could just fly out. So I wonder if they've developed that in order oh, def- to... Yeah, definitely. It looked like that was a more secure handle, but so uncomfortable looking. But now I was watching that. I never would have watched that until we spoke to Andrew, how their hands were positioned. I know. And we'll put a link to this uh, relay in the show notes because since that kerfuffle happened, then you got to see the U.S. try to qualify and then the final race. But the cameras focused on the handoffs. And that was just really great because it's just like, oh, it's exactly like he says. Now I know what to look for. I know. So now we have either ruined relays for you or made them so much better because now all you're going to be doing is watching with their hands. Oh, a little bit of both because they, were, <laughs> they are so much better. But you know how most relays show up on TV where they're looking at the entire track? Or look, they've panned far out so you can see who's in front. You can't necessarily see the handoff. Right. And as a viewer on television, you don't get to choose what you're looking at. Exactly. You have to go with the angles that they give you. So we need a hand cam. (laughs) Maybe they could put like one of those little tiny remote cameras inside the baton. That would be interesting. Baton cam. Baton cam. It might be really scary to watch because I'm sure the baton goes up and down and up and down and up and down. You might get a little seasick. Yeah. But still, I'm voting for baton camp for Tokyo. (laughs) Let's check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. Welcome to Shuktlistan. So we actually have some sports going on, and pro beach volleyball would be one of them. So Kelly Clace, as we mentioned last week, she and her partner Sarah Sponsel have been part of the AVP Pro Beach Volleyball Champions Cup tournament, uh, which was a three-tournament competition that was in their own little bubble. 
And so in the first event, they placed third. In the second event, they placed fifth. And then in the final event, they got second place to eventual Champions Cup winners, Alex Kleinman and April Ross, who are the top-ranked U.S. team. Kelly is just so excited to be playing. She's been posting a lot on on Instagram about the pictures from the tournament, and she's just so happy to be playing. Oh, I'm sure. And doing very well. They ended up finishing fourth on the Champions Cup overall list, so they didn't get to share in the bonus purse, which is a little sad, but at least they got to play and they had fun and they did well. Our sustainability expert, uh, Matthew Campelli, moderated a discussion on sustainable technology in sports for the Sports Pro Insider Series. This is exciting news. I have been so glued to Chelsea Memel's adult gymnastics journey videos on her YouTube channel, and she's made it official. She is coming back to competitive gymnastics at the age of 32. Making a run for Tokyo. Exactly. She called the national coach and was like, what What do I need to do? And she just looks fantastic. Do you watch her? Yes. I watched it on Instagram. And I guess it was two weeks ago, she started doing Arabians on the beam, on the high beam. Mm-hmm. And I was watching her do them. And I was thinking to myself, you're not doing that just for fun. <laughs> if you can nail this, you're going to come back. It was almost like the mental test for her, it felt like, Mm -hmm. when she got her Arabian back on the high beam. Then she was ready to to announce a comeback. God, is it gorgeous. Oh, my gosh. She just, she looks so strong. And seriously, you can't tell that she's 32 and that she has two kids. Yeah. She has worked so hard on getting her fitness levels up and just working very slowly. And the maturity shows. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is so nice to see. It's like, oh, yes, you know what you're doing. So we'll see. I mean, this is a hard one to come back to because they cut the number of competitors who can be on a team. Yeah, because now they've also allowed the 15-year-olds in. So if you were not old enough for 2020 but would be old enough for 2021, they're allowing those girls. So if you turn 16 in 2021... Those girls are now allowed. So now you have someone coming back. So you're kind of getting it from almost both sides of the age spectrum. So the entire calculation for what the U, especially the U.S. team, I'm sure other countries are are going through this as well, but particularly the U.S. team is going to look like they've had to throw the whole calculus out the window and start over. I think the makeup of the U.S. team this time around is going to be very interesting to watch. Shiva Keshavan has been appointed as the chief coach and high performance director of the Indian National Luge team by the Luge Federation of India. That is very exciting. Yes. And then I was looking around because I'm I'm waiting for my uh, new book club book, A Shot at History by Abhinav Bindra to come in. And I remembered that Shiva has been doing those Inspire interviews on Instagram. And of course, he has interviewed Abhinav and it's a really good one. We'll have a link to that in the show notes, too. Give it a listen. If you're also looking for another podcast to listen to, Chloe Kim was on Just Women's Sports, and that was a really good interview, too, because she talked about taking a year off and how that was really healthy for her, and it it, it got pretty in-depth, and it was really, really good. Let's move on to our Tokyo 2020 update. (laughs) 
there is the possibility of a protest moment of silence at the opening ceremonies. That is one of the Rule 50 things that is being considered by the IOC Athletes Commission because they're the ones tasked with that. Right. So this goes back to what we were saying earlier about Rule 50 and the, the protests on the podium are not allowed. And they're trying to come up with a new method to allow protests in some fashion. So what are they going to make this moment of silence for? Just everything people want to protest? Here's your moment of silence? I found this out from Inside the Games, and it doesn't go into detail of what that would be. But maybe it's an opportunity for people to kneel if that's the type of protest they're doing, or to raise a fist if that's the type of protest they're doing. I'm not exactly sure. So they're, I think they're just in the beginning phases of trying to figure out what would be permissible. And appropriate. Yes. Hey, guess how hot is it in Tokyo? Yeah, remember when we were worried that we were all going to melt in Tokyo and that was all we had to worry about? <laughs> that we were going to burst into flames like the cauldron itself? What happened with that, Jill? It went the way of Zika, which was nothing, basically. So it turns out the AP reported about the halfway point of... Tokyo, what would have been Tokyo 2020, temperatures were in the 27 to 30 degrees Celsius range, which would be the low 80s Fahrenheit, which is a little cool for Tokyo this time of year. So it would be a little, it would end a little damp. So no real heat, but you'd have some humidity, but that's to be expected for this time of year. And then week two was going to be mild temperatures and sunshine. Well, you know what this means. Next year, it's going to be like the hugest heat wave that Tokyo has ever seen. <laughs> and the only people who would be happy about that is the people who said we are moving the marathon to Hokkaido. Hey, what's going on with the marathon? We haven't talked about the marathon in months. We got a Marinovella update. That was exciting. Also from inside the games, uh, the course that's going to be used for the marathon is set to be officially measured later this year. So it's got to get certified. That's all the courses have to be measured and certified so that they know they're as long as they need to be. And then there will be a test event at some point in 2021. But it's still set to take place in Sapporo. Still going to be far away from everything else. Not as far away as Paris surfing. <laughs> true, true. And then the Paralympics schedule has also been confirmed which is very exciting. It looked like they did the same thing with the Paralympics as they did with the Olympics. They really tried to keep it as much the same. Yes, very exciting that that is confirmed as well. Let's talk about Paris 2024. World Athletics has proposed bringing cross-country back to the Olympics as an event for 2024. Now, this is very interesting to me because... In the United States, cross-country is an absolute staple in high school sports. Mm -hmm. Like, if you've got one sport, it's cross-country and basketball. It's like, that, at least up in the Northeast. But I think that's probably true in, in a lot of places because it's a cheap sport to run. So it's so funny to me that I, when you sent this article, I said, oh, yeah, there's no cross-country in the Olympics. It's all track. Right. So it last appeared at the 1924 Games, which probably is another reason for them wanting to bring it back. What they're going to propose is a mixed relay. Fifteen countries would participate and each team would be two men and two women. 
and each member runs two legs of a 2.5 kilometer course. You know how I love mixed relays. Yeah, I know. It's, it could be very exciting, it, but it, it'll be interesting to see what event gets taken off the program if this, this gets added on because Paris is really going to be tight for events and how many people get to participate. Remember uh, a couple weeks ago we talked about Le Club? Yes, I wanted to join Le Club. But you cannot join the club because oh, you do not they, live in France. They don't like the Americans as the club. They don't like, <laughs> they don't like anybody else in the club. <laughs> Only the French can be in the club. Right, so uh, the club is open. We'll have a link to that in our show notes. Or you can find it at club.paris2024.org. Again, this is a way to get the local residents excited about the games, get them active, get them doing stuff, and there's opportunities to be involved. Like we said uh, last time, you may possibly get an entry into that uh, Olympic Day marathon, the, the regular marathon that they're having in conjunction with the Olympics. Another thing floated is that you might be able to carry the torch. Oh, the members of the club get the torch? Well, well oh, maybe, oh, oh. maybe, maybe, oh, maybe oh, oh. one. Moving on to LA 2028, Casey Wasserman, who is the chairman of the organizing committee, did send a letter to TBOC asking for a rule change that would allow athletes to protest against racism, either from the podium or at other times during the international competition. He pulling a coatsy and going rogue. Sounds like it. <laughs> Sounds like our kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I am not familiar with this person, so I will have to get to know him. <laughs> the, the LA Times reported on this, and of course the IOC has not responded. And LA 2028 also declined to comment to the LA Times. So <laughs> I don't know, maybe I mean, he this, did go rogue. This Rule 50 man is... We did not see this one coming. Mm -mm. I mean, we thought Rule 40 was going to be the controversy in Tokyo. Yeah, right. We did, with, we did a ton of stuff on Rule 40 and being allowed to have sponsors and the sponsor's name. And then all of a sudden, the thing gets delayed. And everyone's like, oh, look at this other rule that people haven't talked about since 1968. Let's throw this in the air and see what sticks. And now it's Every week we've got Rule 50 news. It's incredible. Great, because it's the athletes getting more of a voice. And it's their competition. Yes. So it'll be exciting to see what happens with this. I know. We thought heat was going to be the discussion. Rule 40 was going to be the discussion. Nope. Corona and Rule 50 shows us. Looking at other Olympic-related news, the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Museum is now open which is very exciting. It looks really stunning in pictures I've seen and uh, things I've read about it. Also, the USOPC released its finances for last year. But only for 2019. We haven't seen any 2020 numbers. No, so I'm super interested to see what happens because we know that a lot happened administrative cost-wise. But if you want to have a fun day on Twitter, be on Twitter the day that the USOPC releases its financials. <laughs> Because Phil Hirsch, who's a, a journalist, and Scott Reed, who's a journalist, they both went to town looking at what was going on here. And uh, Scott reported, he, he writes for the, uh, the Orange County Register in California. And the headline on his piece was, 
the U.S. spends $20 million more on employees than athletes in 2019. Well, at least it wasn't stakes and watches. No, it was more like employee salaries and legal expenses. Scott also said they spent more than $24 million in legal expenses uh, over the last two years because they have dozens of sex abuse lawsuits oh. to deal with. And you want to know what some of that legal fee was? Rule 40-ing us. Mm-hmm. That was a good use of money. Right. <laughs> this article does, we'll link to it in the show notes, it does talk about the high levels of compensation that, well, I could say high levels of compensation. The CEO gets over $800,000. Whoa. Yes. But to be fair, comparable for other. Yeah, see, that's the, that's always the argument is that oh, we can't get the talent because we couldn't. We need to pay that talent what another company or organization would pay them. But you always hear nonprofit, you don't make a profit. So, you know, I'm sure if you're right. down on the bottom, you're making next to nothing and you're being told that you're doing this for the good of whatever. But at the top, you're, you are definitely making a profit. Philip Hirsch reported after he started digging through the forms, so uh, 13 staff members make over $200,000 and uh, another 132 people make at least $100,000, which, you know, goes pretty far in Colorado Springs. So that's interesting. My big takeaway from looking at the financials was that they spent $27 million on the athletic training centers and $22 million on media and promotion. That $27 million doesn't seem like a lot of money. No. For, and then for, for all the training centers. I'm not sure that the financials actually spell out that much because they, they only spell out what they need to spell out. But there's the three big training centers. There's one, the Colorado Springs, there's Lake Placid, and then there's one in Chula Vista, California. Then there's all those like satellite sites that are connected. Like Park City and, and some of the smaller Right. Sites where they need for specific sports. Specific sports, but there's also other complexes where they're affiliated with the U.S. OPC. Like there's one outside of Cleveland that's kind of a training center, but it's not an official training center. I forget what they call it, but it's known as a place where you can go train. And there's one in Tennessee as well, because that's where Josh Williamson will go and train right. sometimes. So I don't know if that $27 million goes to all of those sites or is that just split across the three big training centers but when you think about like nine million dollars per training center if you split it equally and that's not a whole lot no especially in what we thought was going to be a pre i mean everything is either an olympic or a pre-olympic year at this point but you would think especially leading up to a summer games because there's so many more athletes involved mm-hmm that just doesn't seem like much money for the athletes. No, and to spend, well, you get into my favorite phrase that they like to use. You know, nearly half of what we have is for the athletes, which is their, their spin of saying the majority of money that the USOPC gets does not go to the athletes. Goes for Nabisco and their cookies. And goes to, well, Nabisco probably paid for the rights to do that. But it also, you know... <laughs> Median promotion. I mean, I get that that athletes need help with promoting things, but twenty two million on that. Hmm. I would think they need more money for training than for promotion. I would agree with that. But speaking of 
what could the IOC do to reform? The U.S. Senate passed uh, some reform legislation saying basically, and this is also from Scott Reed at the OC Register, the Senate passed some reform legislation that would give Congress the power to dissolve the USOPC board of directors if they saw fit. Oops. <laughs> Scott reported that the legislation requires the USOPC to assert greater oversight of the national governing bodies and provides it with expanded tools to discipline those that fail to protect athletes. Then it also mandates that the USOPC establish clear procedures and reporting requirements for reporting abuse. You know, I don't need $21 million for a tool to discipline these people. I need the wooden spoon and I'll be like, you touch that girl again and you're going to be sorry. I got my wooden spoon. Five bucks. <laughs> and an angry Italian and we will be good. <laughs> But it also the the bill also requires the US OPC to contribute twenty million to safe sport. Well there you go. Finally. And you know how much they contributed in twenty nineteen? I don't think it was gonna be twenty million. It was seven point five. Oh. And how much did the US OPC pay to Jet Set Sports, a uh, company specializing in Olympic related corporate hospitality? 7.8 million. So they paid more for hospitality than they did for safe sport. Why does this not surprise anyone and infuriate everyone? Wooden spoon. I'm going to go knock some heads in Colorado Springs. That's probably why they're they're not letting me fly. <laughs> it's all a conspiracy because they're afraid of me and my wooden spoon. We will see what happens. I believe that it just passed the Senate, so it would also have to pass the House as well. That'll be a fun piece of news to follow, but not as much fun as the watch party we're going to have on Saturday. So I'll bring the wooden spoon. <laughs> but I won't use it on anyone, I promise. Please join us on Saturday. Again, that's uh, four in the afternoon on the east coast of the United States. It'll be later in the evening for Europe and then early Sunday morning for Japan and uh, New Zealand and Australia. But we hope you can join us. Uh, please, again, if you need the Zoom meeting info, you can email flamealivepod at gmail.com and we will get that out to you right away. But we are looking forward to seeing everybody again and to talking with John. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Let us know what you learned about passing the baton at Relays. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week, we are going to talk about athletes transitioning out of competition with Leslie Klein, who herself was an Olympian. That's a really interesting conversation as well, so be sure to tune in for that. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. Sometimes you think that you were in the movie. I stop the recreation of what's inside. Sometimes you think that life is just a journey. Search for meaning you'll never find
So now I got to go and find myself some batons and handle them. 